And we love all of you. When we're away, we pray for you. And when you hurt, we hurt with you. And when you rejoice, we rejoice with you. And I'm excited because this is the first indoor church service. Last week, an outdoor service was the first church service of any kind that my family and I have been in since the 22nd of March. And I agreed to preach because, I mean, Jeff promised if I preached, I could take my mask off for 45 minutes. And so I'm here and I'm, I'm so happy to bring God's word. Who would have ever thought when the clock struck midnight on January 1st that 2020 would bring this? It's been crazy. But when we left Uganda at the end of March, not sure what was going to happen, and we're still not sure what's going to happen, one thing we kept emphasizing together as a family is that no matter what state or country we happen to wake up on in on any given morning, no matter how much things are changing around us, there are some things that remain constant. God does not change. Who we are in Him does not change. The kind of life that He has called us to live, the kind of people that He's called us to be does not change. He's up to something much bigger, something much more wonderful than what we can see. Something that doesn't depend on what I've planned on my calendar, on what kind of budget I've set, what kind of situation I feel most comfortable in. Because the story's not about us. We're just sojourners living our part in his story. And so we view everything, including the uncertainty of a pandemic, through the lenses of what God is doing. A couple of weeks ago, my family and I watched a few sessions of the virtual Voice of the Martyrs conference. And we heard testimonies, powerful testimonies from Christian leaders, one who spent over a year in a Sudanese prison. His cellmates were former members of ISIS who absolutely hated him and beat him and tortured him repeatedly and nearly killed him. Another was known, is known as the Billy Graham of Iran. Years ago, his brother was executed by a firing squad, and he responded not with bitterness about his brother, but by dedicating his life to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with as many Iranian Muslims as he could. The third was in China. He gave his life to Christ soon after the protests and the massacres at Tiananmen Square in 1989. And for years, by day, he taught in a communist school. And by night, he pastored a house church and led an underground Bible school. He was arrested. He was thrown in prison. And eventually, he had to flee for his life to the U.S. All of them told stories of suffering both in their own lives and in the lives of those close to them. But every time the story they shared was the same. It was a story of joy, of how God had worked through the suffering to give the opportunity to share the gospel and bring freedom, true freedom, to prisoners and even to those who were torturing the prisoners. They weren't minimizing the suffering. They weren't, as Jeff said last week, sanitizing the story. What happened to those guys and to their colleagues was unspeakable suffering and pain. But faith is not a painkiller. Our faith takes the pain and puts it into its proper perspective. And these guys were filled with joy because they saw their suffering through a wider lens. They understood that the details of their stories are just small parts of a much larger story that God has been writing since before the beginning of time. They understood that they are not the main characters. They understood that they are just sojourners, temporary residents living in the great story of God. 
Now, I wish that I could say that after those Voice of the Martyrs sessions were over, that we turned off the TV and had a time of prayer together. But instead, we switched over to CNN and we watched the presidential debate. Yeah. And between the debate itself and the flood of reactions all over social media, especially in contrast to these testimonies we had just heard from these servants of God, it was clear to us that we live in a world, many Christians included, that have absolutely lost sight of the story that we're living in. The world is crying out for help, but we are so confused as to what kind of help we really need. And as followers of Jesus, we need to be reminded. We need to have a much larger, a much clearer view to know that the mess this world is in is not caused by any current events, by any pandemic, by any social issues, or by any leaders on, any, on either side of the political divide. The mess that we are in goes way back to Genesis 3 when a young couple in a garden was deceived to believe that they could reach out and take control of life for themselves, that they were deceived, that they could become, in effect, the God of their own life. Great missionary Robertson McQuilker, Robertson McQuilkin said that ever since Adam's rebe rebellion, our vision has been blurred as to what the story is about. He says, by striking out for independence from God, he broke the connection and damaged the image. In fact, he disabled his God compatibility and not only missed out on knowing God, he tr didn't even truly understand himself anymore. So we, his descendants, are born disoriented, confused about reality, infected by a pandemic sin virus that renders us a mere shadow of what we were designed to be. And in our confusion, we have a tendency to create our own narratives. And Jeff said last week that people will do whatever it takes to push their narrative forward. And without being even fully aware of it, because our narratives are like glasses, you don't think about them, you just look through them. We tend to view then everything, including how we relate to God, through the lenses of that narrative that we've created. We evaluate God's wisdom and God's goodness based on our assessment of how things are turning out for us. When we get the job or the clean bill of health, we say that God has been good. But when things fall apart, we wonder what God is up to. And we wait for Him to show His goodness again by making everything work out again. We so easily forget that the story is not about us. And if we don't understand whose story this is, we won't have a clue how to live purposefully in the chapter in which we are currently living. I love that we're studying Exodus during this uncertain time because Exodus hits the reset button for me. Exodus reminds me that I'm part of a story that is infinitely bigger than the temporary concerns of the guy that I see in the mirror every day. Exodus reminds me that I'm a sojourner, but that I'm a sojourner who has a God-sized reason for being alive. Because it's not just an old story of God accomplishing a particular deliverance for a particular people a long time ago. It's not just an example of God stepping into difficulty and making everything okay again. From start to finish, 
Exodus is not just part of God's story. It is a microcosm of the entire story of God from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story of a personal, merciful, covenant-keeping God who enters the mess of this world to show real mercy to real people who are living in real situations, accomplishing real deliverance in in real time. And at the same time, a story that's pointing ahead to a day when he would pour out the fullness of his mercy once and for all in one great act of deliverance, one sacrifice for all sins, for all time. Last week, Jeff looked at Exodus chapter 1 where the stage is set for this epic story of redemption and deliverance. The children of Israel had been welcomed years ago into the land of Egypt during the time of Joseph, whom God had sovereignly put in place so that he could deliver his people and preserve them when this seven-year worldwide famine hit. And they thrived in Egypt for a long time, long enough for 70 people to multiply into a great nation living within a great nation. But it says after a lot of time passed, a new king came into power, one who had no knowledge of Joseph, or at least who had no respect for Joseph and his people. He was threatened by them, so he put them to hard labor as slaves. But it says the more that he afflicted them, the more they multiplied. Plan B, Pastor Jeff called it, was to order the Hebrew midwives to kill every newborn baby boy as soon as he was born. But the problem for Pharaoh was that the midwives feared God much more than they feared him. And so not, it, that plan didn't work either. Plan C, at the end of chapter 1, is that he commanded that every Hebrew baby boy be thrown into the Nile River. That brings us to Exodus 2 where we have the story of the Lord preparing a deliverer for his people and preparing his people to be ready to be delivered. I won't read the whole passage, but if you want to open your Bible to Exodus 2 and follow the story along as we work our way through it. Now, this is one of those narratives, Exodus 2, where we kind of need to take a peek to the end of the story in order to get a good idea of what's actually happening at the beginning. In verse 23, it says that the king of Egypt eventually died, but the oppression continued. And then it says that the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Now, if you went straight from the end of chapter 1 and the slavery and went all the way to jumped to the end of chapter 2, it would appear that the timeline went like this. Israel was suffering. They cried out to the Lord. And in response to those cries, the Lord began to prepare a deliverer for himself. But if you notice in your Bible, chapter 2 doesn't begin with verse 23. And that means that by the time they cried out for help, God had already been in the process of preparing a deliverer for nearly 80 years. In fact, it goes back even further because a few hundred years prior to that, in Genesis 15, the Lord had told Abraham that his descendants would spend 400 years as foreigners in another land and that they would suffer as slaves in that land. But he said, don't worry, I'm going to go and I'm going to accomplish, I'm going to pass judgment on the nation that enslaves you and I'm going to bring you out into the land that I promised When we recognize that, we recognize that this is the God Jesus described in Matthew chapter 6. The Father who knows exactly what we need 
even before we ask. In this case, hundreds of years before they asked. And this is so important for us to remember at the outset that on every page of every chapter of our part in his story, no matter what is going on in our lives or in the world around us, we can be absolutely certain that when we cry out, we cry out to a God who was already at work long before yesterday to a God who hears us and sees us and walks closely and purposefully with us today. And when we cry out, we cry out to a God who will not fail to deliver us once and for all, to keep his promises, to lead us faithfully into an everlasting tomorrow where he is already waiting to receive us. Over and over in the Exodus story, we see God orchestrating events to preserve and to prepare his chosen deliverer. Over and over, God takes what Pharaoh meant for evil against them, and he uses it to accomplish his deliverance instead. For example, Pharaoh is so concerned that Israel was going to make an army that would join with their enemies and fight against him. And he knew that these soldiers would be guys. So while Pharaoh was so busy, he says, we've got to get rid of the boys. And while Pharaoh was so busy trying to exterminate the boys, do you know what God was doing? God was busy accomplishing his purposes through the ladies. First, the Hebrew midwives that we saw in chapter 1. They absolutely risked their lives. You realize he could have easily executed them. They absolutely risked their lives by refusing to obey the king's order. He asks them why they aren't doing it. And they say, you know these Hebrew ladies. I mean, no breathing exercises, no epidural. They just push these babies out and they're back out in the field working before we can even get there to call on them. And God not only protected them, He takes Pharaoh's scheme to subtract from the population of Israel, and he actually multiplies the population. Next in line, you have the mother of Moses. She gives birth to a baby boy. And it says in verse 2 that she saw that the baby was beautiful, or some versions say fine or special. Now we see throughout the scriptures, we have to remember this, that God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God doesn't look at what he sees on the outside, what we have to offer in order to assess whether or not we're good enough to work in his purposes. But people do look at the outside, don't they? And in early Hebrew writings, there were all kinds of stories about Moses as a baby that tried to show that he was an unusual child from the beginning, to cast him as a born deliverer, for the right, as the right man for the job. One story says that Moses came out of the womb pre-circumcised, a a true Israelite from the very start. Another story said that, that when he was born, his face shone so much that when he came out, the whole room was filled with a light that matched the light of the sun and that of the moon combined. Another story says that at just one day old, he was already walking and speaking. Another story says that he refused to nurse that he started eating solid food right from the start. I mean, that sounds like what a deliverer would do, right? They tried. But it is so important for us to recognize that even though Moses was used greatly by God in the most important role in the history of Israel, Moses was a normal guy. He was another sojourner in the story of God like you and like me. He wasn't the deliverer because he had any special qualities that set him apart. 
He was the deliverer simply because God set him apart. And for Moses to be God's chosen deliverer, he himself had to be delivered three times in the process. The first one being right here. Now Hebrews 11, which we'll look at a couple times because it helps us with some extra information, says that the parents of Moses hid him, not in fear, but by faith. Somehow, we don't know exactly how, but somehow they knew that their action was tied to God's purposes. We don't know if the Lord spoke to them or if they just had a sense, but it says that they saw him. This is an important word in this chapter. They perceived something and they knew that God wanted this child to be preserved. Now, technically, his mom obeyed Pharaoh's order. She put her baby boy in the Nile, but she gave him a little help. Verse 3 says she hid him in a basket. And it's a very interesting word choice because the only other place this word translated as basket appears in the scriptures is in Genesis 6 to 9, where it's translated as ark. In other words, Noah's ark. Looking back to when God delivered Noah and his family through the waters of the flood in order to preserve a people for himself. And now he does the same thing with Moses, placing him in another ark, though a smaller, scaled down, more economical version. And through Moses, he delivers, the, he delivers him through the waters so that through Moses, God can preserve a people for himself. And when she put him there, this was an act of great faith. Once she lets go, it's literally out of her hands. And it's in the hands of God to whatever happens from there. And what God does next is masterful. Enter two more ladies into the plan. Verse 5. So there's Moses floating in his little ark. And who just happens to be walking along the riverside? The daughter of Pharaoh. And she sees the basket and tells her servant to bring it to her. Now, we look at this part of the story and we think it's incredibly cool, don't we? Because we know how it ends. But think about it in real time as it happens. The king has said, all baby boys need to die. His mom puts him in the water to save him from the king. And the person who finds him is the one who calls the king daddy. If this is a movie and you don't know how the story ends, you're thinking, oh no. But God has a way of taking those oh no moments and using them to accomplish his purposes. And he does it here by touching the heart of the king's daughter. She opens the basket and there's Moses. Now forget the old stories. It doesn't say he was glowing or that he impressed her by speaking to her in fluent Egyptian. He was a normal Helpless baby, completely dependent on whatever she decided to do with him. And it says in verse 6 that Pharaoh's daughter saw the child. She soon recognizes and says that this is a Hebrew baby, but first she saw the child. And the child was crying. And the Lord touched her heart. And she has compassion on him. And rather than wanting to kill him, she wants to keep him. The sister of Moses is watching nearby. And so in verse 7, she rushes in to help. She says to Pharaoh's daughter, hey, you're going to need someone to nurse this child. Shall I go and call one of the Hebrew women? That was a bold move, wasn't it? See, a young lady, and this is the daughter of the king. But Pharaoh's daughter says, that sounds great. And so his sister goes and comes back with his mother. Do you realize the cool sovereignty in this thing? And Pharaoh's daughter says, take him and nurse him for me. 
and I'll pay you. And when the child's weaned and ready, bring him back. Now, in that culture, it would have been at least two or three years. Some scholars say it could have been six or seven or eight years until he would have considered to be, been considered to be weaned. Think about this. The parents of Moses take a big risk of faith by putting him into the river to be, fi- to be found by whoever comes along. God orchestrates the timing so that the one who finds him is the daughter of the king, the king who decreed that he should be killed. He turns her heart towards Moses, sends him back to his birth mother, who raises him and teaches him during the foundational years of his life, and she gets paid a nice salary for it. And verse 10 says that the daughter of the very man who ordered that Hebrew baby boys should be thrown into the water names him Moses, which she connects to another word, and she says, because I drew him out of the water. We could stop right here and say that is an absolute showcase of God's sovereignty and God's wisdom and God's power. And it's a preview of how God would save not only Moses, but all of Israel by drawing them through the waters of the Red Sea about 80 years later. But maybe you're, maybe you're like me sometimes when you read the Bible and you think, well, well, of course God would orchestrate those things for him. I mean, he's the chosen deliverer of God's people. He has to do that. And it's much easier to trust in God's sovereign care when we're looking at the story of Moses in the rearview mirror because we know how it ends. But here where we live, on this particular dot of the timeline of human history, it's not so easy to trust, is it? Because our lives are still happening. But we need to remember that God is not just the God of epic Bible moments who specializes in parting large bodies of water and delivering chosen people from murderous kings, but he is the God who sees and knows and is in the details of his lesser-known sojourners like you and me. And he has an important place for you, not only in his heart, but in his story. I can't promise you that the job promotion will come. I can't promise you that the relationship will heal or that the tests will come back negative. I can't promise you that God will make everything work out for you in this part of his story. But I can promise you that whatever comes, the author of the story is already very present and very purposefully and intentionally at work on this current page on which you are living. And he is already very much present and at work in that next paragraph that you're terrified to step into. How do we trust that? We've got to know the heart of the author. Charles Spurgeon says, the worldling, I love that word, Sounds like something from Lord of the Rings. The worldling, the person of the world, blesses God while he gives him plenty. But the Christian blesses God when he smites him. He believes him to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. Not that all is well because everything is going to turn out as I would like it to, but that all is well because I know however it turns out, every detail of my life is in the hands of a sovereign, wise, 
powerful, loving, faithful, and merciful God. Back to Moses in Exodus 2. Now between verses 10 and 11, a lot of stuff happens. 40 years of it. Between those two verses, Moses lives for 40 years as a favored son of the most powerful king in the world. And that came with some benefits. Stephen in Acts 7 verse 22 says that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power, both in words and in deeds. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote in the first century of a great military victory that Moses accomplished for the Egyptian army against the army of the Ethiopian kingdom. This is amazing. God uses the faith of his mother, the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter, the boldness of his sister, of Moses' sister, to put this helpless little baby who was on death row into a position where he is now under the protection of the most powerful ruler on earth, on earth and where he had access to the best education, the best leadership and military training that you could find. Training which would come in handy a few years later when he leads God's people out of the very nation which gave him the training. That's phase one. But to get Moses into this all-important phase two of deliverer training, God had to deliver Moses from Pharaoh a second time. Verse 11, it says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to see his brethren. And it's really important for us to understand that this was not a random visit. This wasn't the prince of Egypt looking over his kingdom and he happens to see some Hebrew slaves. Again, Hebrews 11 tells us that this was a very intentional move by Moses. And keep in mind that Hebrews 11 faith is a faith that above everything else recognizes that we are sojourners in a much bigger story than than ourselves. And if we don't see the end of the story, it doesn't matter. We trust God and play our part in the story. And Hebrews 11 tells us here that Moses visited his people by faith then that what he was actually doing by going there is refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and choosing to endure ill treatment with the people of God. This was an intentional decision by Moses to identify as one of God's people. And in Exodus 2, it says, when he went, he looked at them or he saw what was going on with them. And it went right into his heart. He didn't see Hebrew slaves. It says he saw his brothers. And he saw an Egyptian beating and mistreating one of his brothers. And Moses kicked into action. He did what he was trained to do. This was a military guy. He was a warrior. He knew how to handle these kinds of things. He looked both ways when nobody's watching. He kills the Egyptian taskmaster quickly, buries him in the sand, and he thinks nobody knows what happened. Stephen says in Acts 7, verse 25, that this wasn't random either. This wasn't a random act of justice where Moses just happened to come upon someone being mistreated and he saved them. Stephen says this was an act of vengeance and an act of deliverance. Moses was stepping into the role that he somehow knew he had been called to play, to be the one who would deliver God's people from Egypt. And Stephen says that Moses assumed that Israel would understand that he was the one God had chosen. Not just this one Israelite from this one Egyptian, but all of Israel from all of Egypt. But Moses found out really quickly that they didn't understand. 
or at least that they weren't ready to be delivered or led by anyone, God included. Verse 13 of Exodus 2. He goes out again the next day. He sees two Hebrew slaves fighting, not an Egyptian, but each other. Now, this is the prince of Egypt, right? He knows how to handle disputes. So he uses his leadership and his diplomatic skills, and he steps in to mediate, and he says, hey, this is your brother. Why are you hitting him? You guys should be at peace with one another. Remember, he thought that they knew he was their deliverer, so they should listen to him. But like John would later say of Jesus, he came to his own as their savior, but his own people didn't receive him. The one who was at fault says to Moses, who made you our ruler and our judge? What are you going to do, kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And now Moses says, well, everybody knows what happened and everybody did know, including Pharaoh. And in verse 15, it says he tried to kill Moses, but Moses escaped. And it says that Moses was afraid. But there's a difference between being afraid and acting in fear. Because again, Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses didn't leave Egypt driven by his fear. But what was predominantly driving Moses was his faith. Of course you would be afraid to a degree if the most powerful ruler on the earth had a bounty on your head, right? And of course you would be wise enough to recognize that a dead deliverer is not useful to anyone, so you should get out of town. But it says in Hebrews 11 that he endured because with the eyes of faith, he saw the real king. And he didn't know how, but somehow he trusted that God would be faithful to his promises, even though currently it didn't appear as if things were going according to plan. I mean, it does seem... If you don't know the story, it does seem like a pretty big snag in God's plan, doesn't it? Moses had been perfectly trained, and he was in perfect position. He knew what he was supposed to do. It was time for deliverance, wasn't it? But now he's heading out of Egypt like the deliverer was supposed to be, but the problem is he's not bringing Israel with him. That's not how I would have planned it. That's not how you would have planned it, but it's exactly how God planned it. And we need to understand that this was not a detour that God then responded to. This was God's design. Because God still had some work to do in Moses, and I think even in Israel. Moses was gifted. He was educated. He was experienced. And God will use those natural abilities and skills, just like he'll use the ones that you have, But don't ever be deceived into thinking that God needs what you bring to the table. God wasn't looking for help from the great prince of Egypt. He wasn't looking for help to the confident general of Pharaoh's army who who had strength and wisdom that God could depend on to go and do the job. God was raising up a humble shepherd who would depend on God's wisdom and on God's strength to faithfully and lovingly and patiently lead God's people for God's purposes in God's way into the land that God had prepared for them. How many times does it seem like you are finally in perfect position to be used of God the way that you know he's called you to be. And then you're suddenly moving in the wrong direction for that usefulness to be possible. I'll tell you, that one thing drives me more crazy. If you know me, that drives me more crazy than anything else in my life and ministry. But then I go to the scriptures and I realize that I'm in good company. 
I find Abraham, who was living as a foreigner in the very land that God had already promised to him. I find David, who has already been anointed as king, yet he's hiding in caves and running for his life. I find the apostle Paul, who God had dramatically saved in that encounter on the Damascus road, and he had given him a passion and a burden to preach the gospel to the nations, and now he's sitting in a prison cell. So what do we do when God's work in our lives doesn't make sense? We look to the scriptures. And we remember that we're not the main characters in the story anyways. Just like Moses, just like Abraham, just like David and Paul, we're just sojourners in his story. And so we trust that he was at work where we came from, that he's very present and at work where we are right now, and that he is already at work where we're going, wherever that might be. So Moses ends up in the land of Midian. Verse 16, he was sitting near a well one day and seven young ladies come to draw water for their flocks and some other shepherds come and drive them away. This this is our well. This, This is for our flocks. Get away from here. Well, now Moses is back in his element. Seven damsels in distress and they need a big, strong deliverer to step in and do something about it. He knows how to do that. He's back in action. And so Moses gets up, he fights off the shepherds, and they run away, and he draws water for the ladies. The girls run home and tell their dad what happened. He's like, well, why didn't you bring this guy for supper? I mean, we're in the wilderness. It's hard to find good husbands for seven daughters, right? So they go back, they get Moses. He stays for supper, and he doesn't just stay for supper. He stays, and he lives with them, and he marries his daughter Zipporah, and they start a family. What a great move by God again. I mean, his father-in-law just happened to be the priest of Midian, a well-respected leader in the community. And so once again, the Lord delivers Moses. He gives him a safe refuge where the wrath of Pharaoh will never find him. And when the first son of Moses was born, he names him Gershom, which meant foreigner. And Moses says, I named him that because I have become a sojourner in a foreign land just like his brothers have been for the past 400 years. So Moses is given the job of taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. And now phase two is really beginning. The mighty warrior is being humbled to have the heart and the skills of a shepherd. Moses was pretty sure that he was the right man for the job, but he needed some time. Not to be somebody, but to become nobody. And after 40 years of leading sheep, who had no way of appreciating how gifted and good-looking and well-educated and powerful and important Moses was, Moses was finally ready to lead Israel. When Moses had nothing of his own to lean on, except for his staff, and even that had to be surrendered into the hands of God, he was finally ready to lean on God And let God work through Moses to accomplish his purposes in his time and in his way. Remember, this isn't a story about Moses. Moses is a sojourner in a much bigger story of the relentless mercy of a covenant-keeping God. When you first look at the story, it seems like God was really slow to keep his promises, doesn't it? I mean, 400 years is a long time. 
And the first part of those 400 years, they were just multiplying. They were thriving. And, and so he's already made them a great nation before slavery happened. So why the, all the years of slavery? Do you ask yourself that question? It's okay if you don't understand something. You're not threatening God. Ask the question, why? It seems like God is slow, but we're assured in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not slow in keeping his promises. He's just really patient with us because he wants all of his people to come to repentance and to be delivered. Remember, we don't hear anything about Israel crying out. They're in slavery in chapter 1, but we hear nothing about them actually crying out to the Lord until the end of chapter 2. And that's on a timeline. It says, after a long time, the king died, and then they cried out, and their cry rose up to the Lord. All the Bible movies give us this picture of this pious, godly nation who were crying out for generations for the Lord to deliver them as they faithfully worshipped him from day to day. And what we do know is that the parents of Moses were godly people. We know that the midwives were godly people. And there were probably a few others. But Ezekiel gives us a much different picture of the Israelites as a whole during these years. Ezekiel chapter 20. The elders of Israel come to the prophet. They're in exile and they're wondering, when's God going to let us out of here? And the prophet reminds them, or the Lord reminds them through the prophet, that you're here by your own doing. It's your idolatry that led you here. In fact, this has always been the way of Israel. And he gives them three examples. One of them, the first generation in the wilderness who made the golden calf. The other one, the generation that followed them in the wilderness after they died. But the very first one was the idolatrous ways of Israel before they were in the wilderness, while they were still living in Egypt. Look at Ezekiel chapter 20. On the day that I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things that your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Now, this is not a warning to not get near them. It's a command to get away from what they were already very familiar with. Because look what he says. But they rebelled against me, and they were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things. In other words, they already had them. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And I don't have this on a slide, but then the Lord says, I said then I would pour out my wrath on them. And I would spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt while they were still there. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it would not be profaned in the sight of the nations. And so I led them out of Egypt and brought them to the wilderness. Now that's starting to sound like a very familiar story in the Old Testament, isn't it? God gives them everything they need to live and thrive But they forget God and cry out to other gods. And he brings them under the oppression of another nation. After some time, they're finally humbled and their stubbornness goes down a bit. And they cry out to the Lord. He raises up a deliverer for them and takes them back to himself. This wasn't just a story of God coming and helping some people that he loved who were in a really tough situation. They didn't just need to be delivered from oppression. Like you and me, they needed to be delivered from idolatry 
and from sin. This wasn't a story of pain into comfort, of slavery into freedom. This is the same story that God has been telling and working in since before the beginning of time. It's not just an object lesson or an analogy. This was God redeeming an idolatrous people and bringing them back to himself so that he could live among them, so that he would be their God, so that they would be his people, so that he would then work through them to show his goodness to the nations. That is always the story. It's the story of human history and it's the same story that we're living in right now. Peter says in Acts 3 that beginning with Moses, all of the prophets were simply announcing another deliverer. And what God did in their lives was pointing to the story of his life. Very familiar sounding details because this next deliverer was also born an ordinary child among a people who hadn't heard from the Lord for 400 years, among a people who were living under the oppression of a powerful foreign empire. And there was a paranoid king in his day who tried to stamp out the threat to his kingdom by finding and killing the promised Messiah. But God used some unlikely people, this time not midwives, but a group of Gentile astrologers to outwit the king and thwart his plan. The king responds like the other king did by ordering the murder of every baby boy in the area. The Lord gets him out and he gives him a safe place in Egypt. And then eventually he appears to the parents of the child and says, the king who wanted to kill you is dead. You can go back to your people and begin delivering. And as with Moses and Egypt, this deliverance that Matthew points us to was planned a long time ago. Revelation 13, verse 8 says that this deliverer is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. God had already planned the forgiveness of the sins of mankind before there was any mankind to commit sins. Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 5 says that before anything was created at all, God had already envisioned a family of redeemed, adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, verse 8 says it wasn't our cries for help that made him send a deliverer, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's all wrapped up in the heart of this merciful, covenant-keeping God. It says that God heard their cries. He remembered his covenant with them. He saw them and he knew them. Now that doesn't mean that he had previously not been able to hear them. That before that moment he had actually forgotten about the old covenant. That he couldn't see them or didn't recognize them until now. No, what it's telling us is what Lawrence said. Something's about to happen. And what is about to happen he wants it to be very clear has nothing to do with anything Israel has done. It has everything to do with what was already in the heart of God towards his people. He heard their cries. He wasn't ignoring them. Even when their hearts were turned away from him, his heart was turned towards them. Even when they weren't crying out to him, he could still hear their pain. He was listening. And when they did cry out, he heard them with his whole heart. It's very similar to what we see in Jeremiah 31, verse 15, which Matthew says was the fulfillment of what we see in chapter 2 with the the acts of Herod to kill the children. Israel was crying out in Jeremiah 31 because they were being led away to exile. 
an exile which he told them the chapter before. You're crying out, but you deserve what you're crying out about. But then he tells them, it says that he heard their cries. And in his mercy, he assured them that their tears will not be the end of the story. He tells them through Jeremiah that they have hope because he's making a new covenant with his people. Not like the one that he made when he led them out of Egypt, the one that they broke, but a new one in which he will write his law on their hearts, in which he will forgive them of their iniquities, and he will remember their sins no longer. And in Exodus 2, it says he didn't only hear the cries, but he remembered his covenant with them. He wasn't acting because Israel had suddenly started getting their act together and behaving like God's chosen people ought to behave and deserve his favor. No, they were still a mess, a complete mess. God was looking back, first of all, and acting in love because he had made a promise long ago to their fathers Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when God makes a promise, he always, always keeps it. And not only was he looking back to an old covenant, But when he remembered this covenant, I believe he was looking ahead to a new covenant that he had already planned, one that he would make with his people through Jesus Christ. He heard, he remembered, and then it says he really saw them. He didn't just see suffering people. It says he saw the sons of Israel. He saw his family, the ones he had set his heart on, the ones he had set apart for himself, the ones he had brought to Egypt to preserve them, the ones that he planned to take into a land where he would be their God, they would be his people, and he would live among them. Listen, when the father looks at his children, something happens in his heart. Hosea chapter 11, looking at wayward, idolatrous children who had gone so far from him, but God says his heart was turned over within him. His compassions, he says, were kindled. And he looked at his child and said, how can I give up on him? I'm the one who taught him how to walk. He heard their cries. He remembered his covenant. He saw his children, the sons of Israel. And finally, Exodus 2 ends by telling us that God knew them. Not that he recognized them or that he knew their name, but it's the same word that the Old Testament uses to describe the intimate union between husband and wife. Adam knew Eve, and they conceived. It's a deeply personal, relational word that describes this unbreakable bond that God has in his covenant love towards his people. And it looks ahead to the unbreakable union that he was going to accomplish between Christ and his bride the church. How unbreakable is that? Don't miss this. This is where the story comes to life. This is where our confidence in him makes us secure as we walk through the most difficult and uncertain places in his story. This is the lens through which we see everything else and it makes sense. In Jeremiah 31, apparently the prophet had posed the question to God, Lord, is it possible that this covenant love of yours could ever fail and be broken. And the Lord says, yeah, it's possible. If the sun ever stops shining, if the moon and the stars ever stop lighting up the night sky, the day that happens is the day that it's possible that my covenant love for you could fail. In other words, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 
it ain't going to happen. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the story that we're living in. As sojourners for these few years, but then that's not it. Then in the glory of his presence, unhindered throughout eternity. It's the story of the sovereign love of a merciful, covenant-keeping God of deliverance whom we can fully trust even in the most dark and confusing chapters of our lives. And as we look to the calling next week when God calls Moses to go and announce the deliverance he's going to accomplish, we also remember that it's the story we get to tell. As Peter said, that he set us aside as a people for God's own possession so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light.